So usually I get dogs barking and cats fighting. That's what I get. But this was awesome to be in Revelation 4 with that. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. I went to a store in town that I really enjoy going to. And as I got to the counter, my eyes got teased. You know, as I know they set these things up for guys like me. You know, the M&Ms are always up at the checkout line with everything else that I missed going down an aisle. And, and they got me on this one at the counter. And so I just saw this thing and I thought, oh, what is that? And I picked it up and I turned it around and I got the idea. It was a special piece of equipment that every man should have. And especially those of us that have very short haircuts. And in order to protect our pates from global warming, we wear caps. And so very often, and I will get to this later, don't confuse what at times during most of the season seems to be the Moglo. It's just the baseball cap that protects me from getting the suntan that the rest of my face gets. But as I met the checkout line, I said to myself, I got to have one of those. And what it was for my hat, my protective hat, it was a flashlight that attaches to the bill of your hat. And I've seen companies try to do it, you know, and it's kind of like, well, the idea was good, but that looks like a doctor's flashlight. <laughs> or a gemologist, I'd need a man's flashlight that sticks to my bill. And this one did it and does it. And I was so happy that I attached it to the bill of my baseball cap when I entered into the house. And I gave them a blast of my blinding radiance. And it was interesting because somewhat I thought I would be heroic it would be splendid, and yet there was some repulsion of how blinded they were by my entrance into their life, by the light that was shining from my face. And I think I even confused myself. But I know that when I got away with my special flashlight that attached to the bill, it was awesome. I cut through the darkness of my life. In fact, it was so good, I got so used to it that I forgot to turn it off. So I even came to the table and <laughs> blinded them. <laughs> but that's okay. It was more turkey for me because as they're trying to get their vision back, I'm just cutting away and sawing at it, picking up all the good stuff. I'm joking with you on some of this, but I'll let you figure that out. In Genesis chapter 1, this is the beginning of what God chose to speak as a narrative that ultimately would be conclusive or highly punctuated by the life of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who in this very beginning chapter, that's what Genesis means, the beginning of, the story of the beginning, is one in which God both introduces himself, Elohim, that is the God, the one God in three, 
We see that in this. And we follow this process of light being spoken into the world that seems to, by these scriptures, have gone into a state of chaotic demise. There are scholars that have perspectives on both sides of this. I reason with you saying this is what makes, in my opinion, better sense. It will be debated, but it's not salvation dependent, meaning you can do your research. But it speaks about a time gap, hypothesis, or revelation in which something uniquely from verse 1 to verse 2 happened something of great transition to us, what would have represented a flip or an altogether transformative event that did something to what God had already completed. Here's where verse 1 opens. I know you're familiar with it, but let's go ahead and be students and reintroduce ourselves to it. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And notice what follows that period. That is sufficient enough to say, hmm, that seems to be a statement declared affirmative. It does not seem to warrant any other thing except what now must be noted in contrast to it but let's anchor ourselves one more time in it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It does not say he pondered creating the heavens and the earth. He started to work on a renovation project in heaven and found himself then teased to do something on earth. He established his blueprint by which he would begin the process of a creative formation. It just says God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven being a mystery, earth being a bit less of a mystery to us because we live here, we reside here. There are many in the scientific community that would question, but how did it get here? Well, we have the answer. The answer has been given to us in verse 1, and every designed feature or expressive attribute of God in his creative resources to cause men and provoke their hearts, wow, to live in awe of discoveries that he placed intimately and industrially and provisionarily for us is what we see here. Verse 2 does this, and it's leading to a very important verse that I will get to. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon, it says, the face or the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Heaven and earth, verse 1, completed. Verse 2, something of great chaos has taken place. 
if it is created, there's nothing more that needs to be done. If verse 2 then suggests that something has happened, something has happened. And I'll take you on a journey to find out what Jesus, in fact, revealed perhaps about that event. This is important in a season right now, too, where we would say, God was creating something in my life and it had a period. No, it had an exclamation mark. It was ratified by the Spirit. No question about it. And then, bam, a verse 2 happened. What in the world happened to my world? What in heaven's name, a phrase we popularly hear, but I'm not necessarily saying that it's reverent, could be going on in my life. However, what in Jesus' name am I to understand about that which in this time, in this moment, previous week, has come to bring a void in my life, has come to usher in a darkness in my time of jolliness. What is it that even as verse 2 suggests the Spirit of God brooding over the waters of trouble, the troubled waters, we've heard songs sing about that, Simon and Garfunkel, like a bridge over troubled waters. Better than a bridge over troubled waters is the Spirit of God, who in brooding and moving over that which suggests has been disrupted highly and no longer what it once was, is at work. to become a powerful force of a new work. And this is where verse 3 comes in. Then God said, and tying into our title for today, let there be light. And the scriptures say, and there was light, affirmative, in what is void and dark and troubled, chaotic, once was created, not seemingly in form, in place as it once was, let there be light. God shines on this event. And what we see as it continues is that God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. This is the records of the first day. And the emphasis is both on chaos, creation, chaos, and ultimately creative force. It's going to do something about something that has changed. But it begins with light. The reason that that's important is that Jesus will declare something about himself. We'll get to that. And in this season, in our lives, we need to remind ourselves something better 
than a creative mechanism on the bill of my hat, though I feel very proud to wear it. And it's very effective in cutting through the darkness, the underbelly of a house. Guess who was confident when he walked into his home, even though the temperature was down to like 32 and I was an ice cube. I just flicked that little switch and I had a light. And in that I was comforted, even though I was cold. God in speaking to us, his people, see, don't forget about the light. It's more than an idea. We very often say concerning the scriptures, well, that's a nice idea God had. Or even as I voiced it here, bright idea. Actually brilliant. See, from our perspective, it is an idea. From God's perspective, it is a perfect plan unfolding. It is a blueprint of both things that he has in his infinite wisdom, his foreknowledge already put in motion that he will continue to satisfy until it is completed. One and two, go ahead and argue if you want to that point or the years that seemingly may have been between those two verses. But the bottom line is, is as creation unfolds, it began to unfold with light on a situation that was dark. And everything that you see that unfolds from verse 2 to the conclusion of chapter 1 says emphatically, and it was good. That's good. That's good. It was good. Good, 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 good. Everything that God did to do what we in my opinion, are seeing as a restorative work was emphasized with good. And the only exception that he made was this. It's not good that man is alone. That'd be in chapter 2. Because chapter 1 includes the heart of God to have fellowship with a human being that would be the capstone of his creative ingenuity. And he would not leave that individual, Adamus, whom we know him to be, the first man, the first of humankind, so unique, so special, brilliant, perfect, that he would give someone to Adam that would compliment him. You've heard this in weddings before, woman. That is a bright light in Adam's sight. Where do we go from here, though, to see this picture moving us to the entirety of Scripture? No, let's go ahead, and if you will allow me to find place right now, I'm going to direct you. Let's go to Luke chapter 10, verse 18, just something for you to... So, 10, 18... And Jesus is speaking right now. And I believe that he is giving an insight to that which he saw as light. Jesus is giving an insight to what he saw as light. 
The disciples have returned. They've had a very successful ministry outing. People have been freed of demons and healed of diseases. They see the power of God moving on behalf of the command that Jesus gave to dispatch them and share the gospel. It was getting to their heads and moving into their hearts. They were finding themselves boasting in that which God had empowered them to do. And the reason that that's somewhat important is because when we hear what Jesus moves them to consider about how puffed up they were getting in the manifestation of miracles, he draws them back to this. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus is saying to them that in that event that very likely is giving insight to this cataclysmic event between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis. It was the fall of an angel who was an archangel, a minister of music in heaven. You've heard the story. His name was Lucifer. He was a created being, eternal, serving God, and on some occasion, whatever it was, he looked at the throne of God and said, I'm going to ascend. That's about probably as far as he got, both with his thoughts and actions. He persuaded, the scriptures tell us, over a third of the angels to join him in rebellion against God. There wasn't warfare up there, folks. Michael and Gabriel weren't giving a field report of casualties. <laughs> we lost a battalion today. Those guys are ruthless. They were just kicked out of heaven. And when Jesus says very clearly he saw Satan fall from heaven, the trajectory was to earth. Maybe a couple got bounced off and cratered the moon. But the trajectory and whatever a third represents in the eternity of God in immeasurable multitudes, it would be like a salvo of rockets hitting a geographical location. You've seen the pummeling of rockets upon cities, countries, nations. We have not had the pummeling that other nations have. Germany got it, Poland got it, Ukraine is getting it, Israel has had it, but not like any others. God has been good to us. But when you see a city, a region pummeled by the kinds of rockets, the salvos that can fire in seconds and destroy, leaving craters hundreds of feet, if not yards apart, it's incredible. So the reason I say that is that we don't know the numbers, literally, 
that fell from heaven, only that Jesus is saying, yeah, I witnessed that because I'm the author of that eviction. There was rebellion in heaven, and I saw it, and I saw to it that it would stop. And so as we continue, I would also like to be able to ask you to go to John 1.1. And here's the reason that I want to go to that. John narrates us into a part of Scripture that I hope you can see as a link to where we are in Genesis. Slippery pages. Here we go. Listen to the similarity of how this opens to what Genesis opens. So remember Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved or hovered, brooded over the surface of the troubled waters. Listen to this. In the beginning, it immediately just goes, wow, light bulb, laser, was the word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Elohim, God. The triune God with God, whom we know recognize as the Son of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made, notice, through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life. Notice this comparison. And the life was the light of men. Men were intended both to be in the light and to have the light of God. We'll hear greater clarification on this as a discipline by the Lord to his disciples, to all who follow. But the Gospel of John in particular and right now is giving us a link to not like convince us that this guy, Jesus, is just a show-up, a theological show-off. He's God incarnate who was from the beginning responsible for everything that has ever been created. And the resource in his Godhead for the redesign the one who would architecturally put things back into order that had been displaced, abominated, desecrated, provoking deep sorrow and angst. Do you think that our days today are just like the best of days? So it's a loaded question because you could answer and be justified on both sides of it. And actually what I believe we ought to say is, you know what? As we're moving through Revelation, as we're seeing the tempest, the storm waves 
on the global sphere of both politics and culture, we're ready for God to do a creative work. And you know what he's got to do? He's got to take a group out and that he's got to deliver a judgment on that which remains. Jesus would be in contention with Satan at the time of his ministry here, and he will at one point in time, as Satan is limited, he will be incarcerated and he will have absolutely no influence nor persuasion in your life. He will be an accursed being to no longer try to dwell in the hearts and minds and activities of people, but he will have a dwelling place in hell. And he won't be the ruler there. That's a misconception. He'll be a dweller, just a dweller. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so you have a term that both implies, how could you miss such radiance, such unmistakable contrast between the times of their culture, their political system, the deviation from their spiritual legacy of following God intimately in this system of both sacrifices and prayers and offerings and songs, how could that light not have been seen? No one in my house said, what a joke. Who are you, Mr. Flashlight Man? They were blinded by my mechanical radiance. I wasn't a hero to them. I was testing them in their ability to withstand <laughs> direct light. God also will test men, women and children, their ability to withstand the light of his truth, the light of his love. Do you know God loves people so much that it actually, to some degree, offends them? They try to run from it. I don't want to be loved like that. I don't want to have God's warm fuzzies because basically I'm heated up in my flesh and I want that to be my expressed, liberated choice to make. And so people do. And as you know, a bunch of us are people who said, led to nothing, led to spiritual bankruptcy led to bad relationships, led to consequences. That's not me now. That was me once before, foolishness. But I saw the light, and I wanted the light because I spent time in the darkness. I spent time in the near darkness. I got so close to the light that I wasn't even sure whether it was light or dark. It was just the gray zone. I existed as a gray zone man. Let me tag just another area right now that I think is important. There's actually much to read there, but let me take you over to verse 42 of this same chapter 12 through 50. So we're going to scooch over a page. We're going to pick it up in verse 42. 
And I'm actually going to pop down to verse 43. The following day, this is John, still stained gospel. I think that's where we're at. And I'm going to do one other thing. I need to do this. It's John 12. That's where I want you to go. I know you guys with phones are much faster than me, but I still like the crinkling of pages. 1242.50 Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now you'll see a tie-in. I would have to go back and read substantially that. But here's the pickup in this. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sent and he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come, notice this is the anchor verse, as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Moving on to 47, and if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Remember, the Spirit of God hovered over the troubled waters, brooding, then creative force activated by the Word of God. Let there be light, and there was light. And God was able to say, it's good. It's good that I'm shining this on that. It's good now that with light, I'm going to activate every creative resource to put back in order that which was disbanded, disabled. Good promise for you and I. Let me finish this off. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, reemphasizing, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. These are the last days. Maybe this is the last Christmas. I don't say that begrudgingly. I mean, when you look at the alternative, isn't heaven what we hunger for? Isn't true light what we long for? It really is. You can count everything that you have. You can make an account of every place you've been. There's nothing that satisfies but to a temporal pleasure, just a moment, a blink of an eye. Anything down here that we say warrants full attention, full exploration, full enjoyment. You spend enough time with it and you'll say to yourself, that amounted to very little. A moment, but the moment's gone. What's next? What's next? The Lord would say in these days, my light is next. My light. And you are my light. You're next. I've left you in this world to shine. 
my reality to those living in darkness, to speak to them words that will transact an eternal decision. Your little light is shining, but I'm collecting all of my beams of light, all my lights, I'm collecting you. The church will be collected. The church will be brought into eternity with the Lord, who is the light of the world. And when that's done, which will be to our complete satisfaction, being brought up to heaven with him, the Lord will do a work. And it will be a judiciary work. Suspended now in grace, there's a time in which this world will experience the wrath of God upon it. And there will still be opportunity for those left behind to receive him, but it will not be in the experience that they have afforded to them now. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What should I say? Or, or what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak light and truth, love, everlasting life to any who would receive. So here's what the scriptures also say as I continue to just close on anchoring this. Go to First Timothy 16 or 6.15. Yeah, that would be a long edition. If you find that book, let me know. It'll deserve to be burned. Just a quick insight here of whom we are talking about. Paul writing this to Timothy, the description of God. Verse 14 Slight editing. Keep this commandment without spot, blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Verse 15, chapter 6, verse Timothy. Which he will manifest in his own time. He, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone, notice this, has immortality dwelling, here we go, in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. An unapproachable light. He spoke light into existence. He lived in unapproachable light. It's where he dwells, and yet his connection with us is as light because of his spirit. You may say, is there anything that would corroborate by incident the revelation of Jesus as light? Well, there are a couple of events. Paul would cite Acts chapter 9, and this is where I will conclude. Because Paul felt he was an enlightened person academically, spiritually. He actually was pretty flawless, he would be able to declare. But the provocation of him walking in what was self-proclaimed perfection to the law was also drawing 
from him anger, resentment. He was volatile towards those who were proclaiming that there was something other than Judaism. It was Jesus. He was violated to hear that one whom he certainly would have known, for they were contemporaries, very likely within two or three years, different. That's how close they were in age, Jesus and Paul, when they were born. There's no doubt that he would have been tracking Jesus, who was proclaiming himself to be light, truth, the way. And now to hear the church all of a sudden be called the way as he is on his way to persecute the church. So here's what we hear about him. In chapter 9, verse 3, as he journeyed, Paul, he came near Damascus and suddenly, notice this, a light shone around him. Notice where it's coming from, from heaven. Remember who is not on earth, Jesus. He ascended before the multitudes to do what? Return to heaven. He makes a special appearance to Paul. Noted right now as Saul. He'll take on a Greek version of his Hebrew name. And he becomes an apostle who no longer is feigning enlightenment, but he will walk in the light. He will have the exclusive privilege of being able to ascend into what we here described as the third heavens, the dwelling place of God. And so exclusive was that invitation that he will not be permitted to even share it. He has to keep his heart and his mouth zipped. Even John, in trying to describe the revelation of Jesus to him personally and was brought up in the spirit to see a snippet of the throne, seemingly couldn't adequately describe it. And maybe the Lord would say, I'm going to spare you from the difficulty of imagining how great and awesome this place is. John, you're permitted to give some disclosure. Paul, zip it. You're so good. You will create no desire to live on earth, satisfying the mission of my people to be lights in darkness. They'll just all want to come home. So you zip it. And so this light, unlike my little Bill flashlight, was blinding. Paul, in this moment of being challenged, and it says this as this light from heaven came, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. When men and women eventually are to give an account of themselves before the Lord, they are left with that excuse. Romans clearly says, everything you viewed, everything you enjoyed on earth, everything spoke of me. My eternal, invisible attributes, my power and Godhead, it all spoke of me. You knew that. You couldn't explain it. And you couldn't buy fully the logic behind scientists that tried. You saw light. You saw it in your neighbor's eyes. You saw it 
as a little boy, little girl, when you walked into church and you sat down, even though much of it confused you, you saw the light, you knew in your heart, you heard in a letter that was penned to you, phone call that was made to you, you heard, you saw the light. And so Paul, though, is permitted in this text, Saul, as he's been introduced, to literally be blinded by the radiance of God. That is your association with, was there something contemporary that really shows like this glory unleashed of Jesus? Right here. Moses would have known a different kind of effect on him in which in the presence of God, taking on his watch, the writing of the Ten Commandments, the first was inscribed by God's finger, the second time because Moses had a righteous, angered outburst. He brings those tablets back up. The same writings go on it again. But in this visitation, God extraordinarily shines on him, in which as he comes down, he is illuminated to the degree that the people had to put their hands suggested over their eyes, and Moses would cover his face with a veil. We call that the humorously the mo-glow or the afterglow of being with God. That was what the Baptists called it. We call it the afterglow. The association is what Moses experienced by being in the presence of God. And so one of the things you need to know is that the reality of the light that spoke the world into existence is the same light that speaks your world that at this time may be chaotic, completely out of the sorts that you so carefully had designed and purposed, blessed God for, and what in the world happened? God's not through. There's an enemy that still is capable of firing salvo, spiritual missiles into your life, your situation. And we need to understand that God is able to take that landscape of desolation and destruction and remake it. We have to give him the authority, meaning, Lord, I want you to take authority over this in my life. And I want you at any time, Lord, if I move into darkness to give revelation to me by this encounter, I don't mind you shining into my life, Lord. I don't mind your appearance at all. I crave it. Even though my feet move towards cultural darkness, I get teased in the provocation of whatever. My own flesh. Lord, I want to be intercepted, and I want to be blinded by your radiance, and I want to know it, because I know that it's good for me and right for me. And so... I'm going to invite the worship band to come on up here and close us out in song. And following that, Rivs is just going to give the benediction. He'll sum it up in prayer, and we'll dismiss. Lord, we ask for your blessings even now, and thank you that as we just quietly transition to uh, present ourselves before you, prayerfully and agreeability as we just moved all the way back to the beginning, and we saw a timeline that represented at least emphatically that you are light. 
two men what a bright idea but Lord what a brilliance of radiance that you've given to us how you make everything better by shining on us how you have made our lives better by shining through us thank you Lord Bless our time of worship. Amen.